Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Uh, today's episode from the University of Texas, we are very excited to have Donnie Mabe and Clint Martin. They are coach, strength and conditioning coaches with the University of Texas. So we will let them go ahead and introduce themselves, give you a little background to the listeners out there. Donnie, why don't you go ahead? All right, cool. Well, Dennis, thank you. Thank you, and Neil, for having us. So we are excited to be on the show, and we'll just we'll share a little bit about each other. Again, my name's Donnie Mabe, and I'm our Olympic sports director here at the University of Texas. I currently am working with women's volleyball and men's tennis. Those are the two teams that I currently work with. This is my 25th year as a strength and conditioning coach, going into my 22nd year here at Texas. And so, again, I've, I've been here for a while and uh, kind of came... Kind of like that Drake song. Started at the bottom, now moved up, then I'm here. So, um, so definitely started. Yeah, started at started at the bottom, right? <laughs> Texas uh, was it Colorado before here, and kind of worked with all kind of sports here. In my tenure at Texas, and again, uh, just been been a blessing and very fortunate to be at one place for so long and, and uh, get to work with so many outstanding athletes and have a, a great administration. So that's a little bit about me. I'm Clint Martin. Um, I've been at Texas for going on five years now, coach. I started at Iowa State. It was my first gig. Did my master's there. I'm with a track and field athlete there as well. Um, then I went to University of Nevada where I worked with men's hoops. Um, then was blessed and fortunate enough to get the opportunity to come to Texas and work for Coach Mabe in 2016. Clint, what, uh, what sports do you work with? So I work with track and field, men's and women's, um, and men's swimming and women's golf. All right. It's a pretty, pretty big group. Uh, we met, you guys came to the level one course for stick mobility that we had in Austin. So thank you very much for coming to that course. It was a pleasure working with you guys. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the course. So that was fantastic. So I think one of the things that we want to discuss here to start off with is just looking at the different aspects of training the different sports. I don't know if, if a lot of strength and or younger strength and conditioning coaches who are up and coming or trainers who may be wanting to get into that specialized field of it. Uh, if they're if they know the different nuances, or if they just look at everything generically and say, okay, every this one thing fits all sports. Can you maybe talk about some of the subtleties of the difference between training women's uh, volleyball versus you know track and field or swimming? I mean, that's a good question. I think uh, early on, if you're talking to younger coaches. I remember, you know, 1994, Dennis, my first job was at Colorado and I was a, I was a paid intern. I had worked with every team and every sport. I didn't have just one team. And so, uh, that was probably my first eye-opening experience that, uh, wait a minute, you don't train everybody like a football player. You know, I started kind of kind of understanding and wrapping my mind around that, that there's so many different ways to train athletes. And so that that's, that's what happened at Colorado. And then, so I had all teams. I kind of helped out with there. And then when I came to Texas, I started working with a bunch of different, I had football primarily. And then I had like golf for a little bit. I had tennis, volleyball. I even had soccer for, for a year there. You know, just being around the different sports, I would encourage any younger uh, up and coming strength and conditioning coach wanting to get in this field, just Get your hands on as many sports and teams as possible. Like, kind of get a lot of a lot of width and understanding. I think, and, and Clint can speak to this too, really, really high level. You learn more from the sport, the Olympic sport coaches sometimes, because they think differently and they view the body differently. And then, so you learn not only different shapes and sizes, but energy systems. 
uh, how to maybe different exercises to get the body uh, more strong in a different area. Or maybe, maybe like, like Clint could probably speak to this too, but like he's worked with hoopers that are really tall and he's got what coach or one of your swimmers is what? Six, seven, six, eight, isn't he? No, I got a seven footer. Oh. Yeah, he's, got, he's got, so think he doesn't train a seven foot swimmer like he would a seven foot basketball player, totally different training, but probably has some similar patterns he uses. So I think that as a younger strength coach, the more teams, athletes and, and sport coaches, they can get around and, and pick their brain and ask questions and make them a better, more well-rounded practitioner as they continue to mature and get older. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. Like I've been around collegiate track and field since 2008, right? So I think I have a pretty good understanding about what's happening in track and field, specifically like the sprint side and the power sports. I'm not on the track every single day. So why would I not defer to those who are, right? Whereas I'd hope they defer to me in the weight room because that's where I am every day, right? So there's there's understanding the demand of sport. Um, and if you're not talking to your sport coaches and you're not immersing yourself in the sport, um, you're, I think you're kind of missing a bit of that. But then there's also constraints. My golfers might have 45 minutes in the weight room because that's all they have allotted. Whereas my track athletes might need, like my throwers are in there for an hour and a half to two hours. So there's definitely constraints between what they can do just time-wise, but then also like the constraints of the demand of sport and what they actually need. Um, to become better athletes in their actual sport. Is uh, your seven-foot swimmer, I mean, what is the average height that you would put on a swimmer? I'd say my team, my, my guys are pretty, they're pretty big dudes. Uh, I'd say probably 6'5", 6'4", 6'5". They're pretty big dudes. Wow. Michael Phelps. Couldn't yeah. tell you off top, but he's not short. He's not a short guy. He's not a short guy. I would imagine with a seven-foot swimmer, you can you dive in and you're halfway there. For sure. He's, he's cheating, for sure. Like Aquaman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is, his arm, is his wingspan longer than his height? I don't believe so, but it's pretty close. Like, he's just pulling so much water. He's huge. Wow. Happy for him. <laughs> That's crazy. Holy crap. He's like a canoe just slicing through the water there. <laughs> For sure. That's yeah. insane. Across he all the sports, you know, fundamentally, have you found that there's certain movements that apply to everything? I wouldn't say everything. Uh, I think it's hard to, it's hard to be that general with what we're trying to do, especially at the level that we're trying to do it at. You've got to be, people call it functionally strong, but we've got to be strong through our trunk, whatever that might look like for the demand of your sport. I have yet to see a sport where your glutes aren't important. Now you can correct me if you think any differently, but I've yet to see that. Um, so I think there's definitely things that do cross over. Um, there's patterns that do cross over things that can be enhanced in pretty much all athletes. But I think the way you get those enhancements might be different, if that makes sense. I remember I got a kind of, this is a funny story to kind of piggyback Clint, but I remember first started coaching at Colorado. My boss made me train this. Uh, we had this guy that was coming in. He wasn't in college at the time. He was, was an Indy 500 race car driver. I don't remember his real name. His nickname was Buzz, like Buzz Lightyear. His name was Buzz. And Dennis Neal, he would come in every day. And I was like, I, first of all, I was mad. I had to work with this dude. <laughs> and then secondly, he looked like he worked at Jiffy Lube every, every day. Like he's like up underneath like greasy jeans, t-shirts, no posture, garbage body. I was just like, what? why would we spend time training this guy? You know, looking back, we did a lot of just simple, uh, fundamental work capacity type movements. The guy had never trained. I was very skeptical at the time that he would even improve uh, as we did it. And, and I was, because I was the low man on the totem pole, so I was responsible for making sure when Buzz came in, that Buzz did his workout, he 
left. He didn't get hurt. And so Buzz, as the weeks went by, his racetrack times got slower. I mean, he got faster, right? Because the G-forces in the turns are so strong, he would lose, you know, he'd get fatigued. He'd lose his control of his steering and his gas and, and um, his clutch. And so as he got stronger and got in better shape, just physically, the car performed better because he was, you know, performing better. So I think to piggyback off Clint, I think everybody needs to be strong in different movements, but you may, the lens of how you evaluate what, what you prescribe for every athlete, depending on their, probably depending on their, their, their history, pathology, right? Genetics, uh, training history, sport demands and needs. And then I think, I think also going back to, depends on the head coach too, right? Cause I mean, like we're talking about coach, uh, coach Clint's uh, swim team, like Eddie Reese, I mean, he's got 14 national championships, and, man, what he's doing is working, and so he's going to have a big input, right, Clint, into, sure. into what the guys are doing. Clint definitely yeah, has influence. Yeah, and, and so I think you got to take a lot of factors into consideration, you know, as you're, as you're kind of prescribing and laying out the program. I think that's one of the fallacies in kind of strength and performance is that, like, what we're doing is, like, you see everything happening, the X's and O's in the weight room, and this is what's making you stronger. Well, I don't think that's necessarily the case because there's so many factors outside of what we're doing in the weight room, right? That's just one piece of the pie. So if you're not looking at everything, like the entire training holistically, uh, whether it's what they're doing recovery-wise, whether it's what they're doing in sport, like all those things have such a big piece of what's going into their adaptations that you can't just look at what you're doing in the weight room. Well, so kind of getting back to what you talked about, Coach Mabe, as far as race car driving, it's not something that I think most people, a lot of people have had this debate before, are race car drivers athletes, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I know from driving fast that there's a lot of forces that we don't think about. And really, it's teaching the body how to deal with those external forces that the average person doesn't really, it doesn't pop into their head as far as having what the external stuff is exerting on that person and being able to tolerate that, right? Yeah, I mean, you think, I mean, they're in a car for several hours, you know, depending on how long the race was. It's just like, I'm sure Clint could even speak to golfers. Collegiate golfers have to carry their own bags. Yeah. So there's a there's a physical durability and kind of endurance that can, if you're not in shape physically, right, then mentally, if you get towards the end of the game, you put, your body starts to kind of wear on your mind a little bit and you could lose oh, some sure. focus. So, Absolutely. so definitely being in better shape impacts a lot of different ways, you know? Yeah. I played uh, golf in college and you know, you're, you're carrying that bag for 36 holes. You're going up and down hills. So you're walking like anywhere from 10 to 13 miles, you know, you're out there for 10 hours. So yeah, I agree. We, we ran a lot. We running stairs, you know, running sprints miles. I'm like, why are we doing this? You know, when I first got in there and then, you know, after a while, I get, I understood. For sure. I get yeah, it. I, mean, I travel with golf quite a bit. Um, and we had nationals, I guess would have been two seasons ago um, at Blessing down in Arkansas. And that course is so hilly. Like, I was exhausted and I'm just walking. I'm not playing. I don't have to refocus for every shot. I'm not carrying bags. And I was exhausted. I'm looking at my watch like, I got my stats for the next two weeks. I'm good. <laughs> These girls are playing all day, right? So, but how do you refocus and how do you stay engaged the entire time? Well, you, if you're tired physically, mentally, you're done. And that's where their game falls apart. So it's interesting, like, how much the physical piece can have on the game, um, even if it is more mental. Clint's golfers train hard, too, now. He's got them, he's got them dialed in. They get after it. These right girls, on. they love to play the game, but they also, they, there's, a, there's a physical culture they enjoy, too. And credit to Clint, he's kind of, it's taking a little time, he's gotten them into a good place. And he can, he does, 
And I don't think watching them train, he, he doesn't put them in uh, risky situations. It's not that type of deal. So it doesn't have to be risky. You know, that's, there's some myths with that. So Would deadlifting be something that you guys would have any of your sport athletes do? Is that like a typical standard lift that you would include in all programming or no? Maybe not all programming, but some form of hinge is going to be pretty much throughout all of my programming, um, if possible. Um, obviously, like anatomical limitations might be something that we have to look into. But I mean, some sort of hinge, if it's not a deadlift, maybe it's a trap bar, uh, maybe it's an RDL, maybe that's how we're going to do it. But it's, I mean, that's something that's, it's universal, it's global, it's a big movement. Um, you should be able to do it if you're an athlete in our setting. Um, um, so I think it's definitely a staple for what we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll definitely use it with, uh, with my overhead athletes. I know for my tennis guys, I think we had, we had two really good seniors last year. One of them was from Denmark. Man, this kid, he, he's graduated now, but he, uh, that was his lift. I mean, he loved it. And it worked well for him, you know. We've had guys on the team that really like the deadlift, you know. But some we've had, over the years, it's rare. We'll have occasionally a guy that really likes power cleans. So it just kind of varies. And I think you gotta you got to find, when you, when you get to some of these different sports, finding kind of what works for each athlete. It's a little bit, the puzzle's a little different. For sure. And uh, they're all motivated a little differently. Depending on what country they're from or maybe their back training background, we've had, I've had athletes from, from different countries that just, they hate the weight room and they don't believe in it. So that's a whole different battle. You know, you may not start with some of your traditional lifts with those kind of guys. Just trying to get them, maybe just trying to get them to where they enjoy coming in the weight room and being around you and being around and start to buy in a little bit. And so I think that's kind of foundational for a lot of kids, just getting them to where they look forward. They're not intimidated to come see you and it's not a it's not a military punish you know session with them so i think that's most important at first and then kind of figuring out what exercises you know that they would that they respond really well to and get get, make them feel stronger and i think the weight room should be an empowering place like you're saying donnie like they should enjoy it because they feel empowered when you feel better about yourself like everything gets a little bit better right so that's that's another key place for us the weight room is a very intimidating place for a lot of people I think that's a very underestimated perspective in our industry. I don't think a lot of our enough coaches really look at how can we make it more welcoming for them to be, okay, I'm going to come train with you. Absolutely. You know, know, to add to to that, I think the weight room, there's still, it's crazy. Like we're in 2020 and we still battle different myths. I call them Hmm. like, oh, if you lift weights, you're going to get big. You know, it's like, are you going to put on muscle? You're going to be dense. You can't move. And it's so far from the truth. But I'd say most people's perception of what we do is based off of like what you see in magazines. And it's so far from what we do as a strength and conditioning coach. I mean, yeah, we do want to get them stronger, put muscle mass on them, especially if they're really young. But our goal is to make them more athletic, not make them less athletic. So at the end of the day, we want them to move better, be healthier be more confident, more explosive and resilient at the end of the day. So, so then within the teams you were talking about, um, you know, customizing different exercises for different athletes and, you know, in, in that team setting, typically everyone's doing the same program. Are you guys individualizing the programs within the teams for every athlete as well? I'd say very much so. Um, Coach does a really good job um, taking care of his, his volleyball specific. I'll say, I mean, he's got girls all over the map from, 
height to where they come from to kind of what their training background looks like. And the same with track and field. Sure, we're limited by time. Sometimes that's a big constraint, but I think we all do a pretty good job of being able to adapt and make things work best for each individual athlete when uh, when it makes sense, right? Because we're all going towards the same goal. We all need to express the same kind of abilities in our sport, but the way we get there, the vehicle from A to B might be a little bit different. And we need to make sure that we're um, we're looking at those things as well. Like Clint said, I, especially with volleyball, I like to do about a four-week block of just some just GPP work, just get them to lay a foundation. But then, like before I got on this call today, I was, I've been working on individualized kind of uh, more spe- position-specific needs for each for each female. And so I think that's where you start to kind of get down into the weeds a little bit and tweak things a little better. So again, like like Clint said, you got to have time to be able to do that. So if you don't have times, you got to generalize a little bit more. So are you guys incorporating a lot more or have you seen an evolution in your time, coach Donnie, as far as progression more to involving whole body movements within the loads as opposed to just linear lift? Are you starting to see more of a trend into teaching people how to move with load and move with weight? Yeah, I don't. Clint may answer it differently. I would say I think all your traditional stuff is still there. I feel like we've gotten better at prescribing exercises, regressing three or four exercises down instead of just doing like whatever the main lift would be, whether it's a squat. We'll do instead of maybe like a barbell squat, maybe I do whether it's a goblet, maybe doing a single leg ISO split squat or something like that. We've just got so many different variations. Whereas, you know, back when I first started coaching, I mean, you squatted or you didn't. You, you front squat yeah. or back squat. There wasn't any, or you do a step up. Those are really your three options. And so today we've got, I feel like we've got the, the exercise bank and the way you view that motion or that movement has got, I mean, you can do sled drags today. I mean, you couldn't do sled, man, you couldn't drag sleds when I was in college. Back when I was in college, they put you on a, you know, a thousand pound leg press and make you throw up, you know, do some of that. And so it's just, again, I think the lens on, on, on what people, what kind of exercises actually work and help people get better. I think the lens is the perception and, and how we evaluate the body's different. But again, I think too, part of that, Dennis, that equation and Neil's, I think, uh, like, for example, I've got four daughters at home, right? And, and they have to try out for PE. And so in America, man, PE is going away. And so you see this emerging like club sports. So we've got athletes that have been playing this at this sport for, you know, eight to 10 years before we get them. And most of them have had zero to, to very little uh, performance training in the weight room, you know? And so you got to go back almost and kind of lay some of those fundamental crawling patterns, bracing patterns, like Clint said, you can't squat yet because they don't have the mobility. So you're going to have to hinge them until you can get some ankle, knee, and hip mobility. Because if you try to squat them and load the, the lumbar spine, they're going to have problems. So I think the traditional exercises are there, but I think some of the – like I think even like I watch Clint swimmers. We've got like a little uh, bar across here, our, our rack or track right here, just monkey bars. I mean, kids don't hang from monkey bars anymore. When you get kids, their shoulders are all jacked up because they can't, they can't stabilize and be strong enough to hang. The grip, right, the elbow and the shoulder are not strong enough, the tensile strength. And so you, you start doing big primal movements and then more injuries occur. So you kind of almost got to go back and like, okay, where's the holes and gaps and, pl- and place some of that in, do some of these other variations of your, pri- your traditional lifts 
and you might not, you might be three, four years before you get to those bigger lifts, if, if even. So that's my it, thought. It almost sounds like, you know, we've kind of devolved basically, you know, the reason why we need all these regressions is because from a young age, we're not doing these movements anymore. We don't have that GPP from adolescence to, to the teenage years. It's funny. I went, I went home, I drove home to Iowa um, for the 4th of July and I drove by my elementary school and I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, Oh, this is the playground where we used to swing as high as we can and jump and whoever got the furthest in the wood chips would be the winner. Right? Like that's, that's what we used to do. And you'd land and like Superman and get back up and I'm good. My knees feel great. They didn't even have wood chips on the playground anymore. It, it blew my mind. So I'm like, it's, it's hey. just, it's different nowadays for sure. Right? So the way we grew up, and the movements we did kind of on an everyday basis is just, it's just not the case anymore. I mean, real quick, like uh, being in this quarantine or pandemic, we're in like you, would, if we could be outdoors, I would either be fishing or we'd be out riding bikes. We'd be getting into some kind of trouble, right? For sure. I mean, I, again, I got four daughters. Them just, man, if you kind of ask them to go outside, it's like you're punishing them. They want to they be on this, right? I was like, man. I, and so think about how much kids are sitting today compared to when you didn't have a, a phone, you know? I mean, even when we had like Nintendo, when that came out, we played it a long time, but we still like went outside, you know? So, sure. so I just think this the, the, the way the, the physical culture is, is, is just really, like you said, kind of devolved or regressed. In, in athletes and in, in teams today. And I think the, the, you know, kind of my one point was with, when you've got a, you got kids playing in club sports, they're, tr they're training them like Olympians, like pro, pro athletes, but they don't have the engine for that type of training. Mm -hmm. So when we get them, they've got a lot of mileage on their bodies and, and they're, they're a little more prone to injury. So and it's redundant mileage, right? Yeah. They're missing a lot of the other pieces because they're only doing one thing. Too much specificity too soon. Yeah. Yeah, have you seen higher injury rates because kids are playing year, you know, year-round sports? I think you see a lot more injuries coming, like of kids in high school. Like, I'll ask a kid their injury history. I'll look at their profile when they get in. I'm like, "How have you been injured this many times?" And you're 18 and you just got here, <laughs> right? So I think we see that a lot more prior to when they get here. Um, I think obviously our staff does a pretty good job, and our ATs and our sport coaches knowing and understanding where the, where they come from and trying to get them into a good spot before we actually throw those demands of sport on them, right? We try to make sure we're ready for the demands before we actually throw them out there. But you definitely see it a lot more in high school. I mean, you got, yeah, you got kids today that you can't run them in off season in some of these sports. Y'all, if, if I told my coach in college, oh, I can't run in off season. Yeah, you can go back to Tennessee too. <laughs> told me. And so it's just different, just a different, uh, the athletes are built differently and, and you just got different considerations that, you know, like injuries, like Clint was saying, you got to really take into consideration. It's just different. You had referred just early on about energy systems. I think what's kind of interesting, Neil and I have talked about this numerous times where we see a lot of coaches putting their athletes, especially in our area, local coaches who are training specific sports athletes. And we see them training them a certain way. And Neil and I sit back and go, I don't know if that's giving them the right energy system that they need for that sport. Do you see that a lot where you see coaches that are not understanding how to train specific energy systems for and so that it's transferable and, and to what they need it for? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure. I think uh, what, what you're looking at today is it's kind of like that, you know, why, well, why do you do that? Well, that's just the way we've always done it. And I think there's a lot of traditional type training that people see other people do and they just do it because that's what they've always done versus kind of you know trying to delve and kind of learn you know i think that goes back to it's so important 
that you can get around the sport coach and learn how they think and how they train those teams. And then because now if you can learn that, whether it's conditioning, whether it's strength work, whether it's mobility, whatever you prescribe in the, in the weight room is going to match up to what they're doing whether it's the court, the track, or the pool, versus just kind of hitting the same nail. Because if every tool you got right is a hammer, then everything you going to hit is a nail. You're just going to keep hammering it. And then that's where you get the, the injuries come from. Like you said, just you're training somebody. And again, I, I even had to learn this early on in my um, with my tennis guys. You know, they were they were going to practice every day. They would do an individual private lesson for an hour. Then they would practice for two and a half hours. And then they would come see me, and, and I would always just run them. Because that's what we always did. Yeah. And then finally, we started having a lot of lower extremity problems uh, in the calf and knee and the hip. And coach, we sat down and talked. And I was like, I was like, well, coach, the only thing I know to do is just not run them as much. And it was just so, it's like, that was like the sacred cow. Like, what? We don't know. We're not going to run them as much? What, what is that? You know? And then, you know, I think it was about three, four years ago, I went to a, a pro tennis uh, strength and performance uh, conference and all the pro guys, they don't do much running. All their running is on the court. And so now you start training them so that they're better tennis players and not just to be, you know, training a tennis player like a marathon runner or a distance runner to play a sport that doesn't match up, like you said. So it just takes away from the game. Yeah, that's good. I think we always talk about AET, how as a performance coach, we need to be a supplement and not a detriment. And I think that just goes back to like knowing, hey, at the end of the day, what we're doing is not the most important thing. They're not here to be really good in the weight room. What we do can supplement what they're doing, but at the end of the day, they're here to compete at the highest level in their sport. So I think that just goes back to like having that open communication with the coaches and understanding, hey, this is what needs to happen. This is what happens every day on the court, on the field, whatever it may be. Um, and this is how we can help you in, in a performance role and actually help them get better in their sport. So are you, are you talking to the sport coaches on a daily basis daily basis and so that kind of communication is important that's a big big deal yeah yeah especially if you don't want to like you said then it's like not be training them in the right energy system or or maybe whether it's the right movement patterns you know that's going to complement because you want to like clint said you want to complement whatever they're doing with the coach not take away from it that's that was a big time quote clint i'm still that was great that was a great (laughs) i was like as soon as i heard that i'm like check Make it <laughs> That's going on social media. That's a great one. That was, that was fantastic. That was so good. So with the current situation right now, do you have athletes coming into the, to the gyms to, to train or is the campus closed? Coach, you can go. That's all you right there. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think, I think what you'll see across the country, it's, it's just a whole different mixed bag depending on a lot of it's determined and based upon the city you're in and the governance within the city officials and the medical staff in that area. So I know our medical team works closely with the city of Austin with what the regulation we're trying to definitely adhere, obviously, and match up with what our city's doing. And uh, we just football got cleared to start coming back in. I think it was Clint, was it mid June? I think I think it was mid June. Yeah, mid June. And then so they were on board it. On, onboarded first and they wanted to see how that would go you know so they were for two weeks if that went well then volleyball and men's and women's basketball were approved to get tested get all their tests done onboard them and see how that goes and so they that went decent went pretty good uh volleyball just finished up their fourth week this week of training basketball did the same soccer just onboarded last week so they started practice this week so you're going to see like this kind of ramp up as long as everything continues to so it's monitored and managed safely because at the end of the day 
this has been a very hard time for everybody, obviously. But, I mean, we're dealing with not only just our student athletes' well-being and their live livelihoods and their health and wellness, but you also got to look at your staff too, right? I hate to say it, but I'm starting to get up there a little bit, Dennis and Neil. When I came here, I had brown hair, and I got like white hair. Gray hair. So, I don't know if Texas did that to me or my daughters did that. I don't know, maybe a blend, but uh, it's the daughters. Yeah, you know, that's right. But I, I think you know to answer your question, you know, we're, we do have uh, some teams onboarded and ramped up, and seem to be doing well. Knock on wood. And then if that goes well here at the end of August, then we'll probably uh, they'll probably look. I would say cross country might be next. Clint, would that be accurate? Yeah, right now we're scheduled for. I mean, they'll test mid August, then we'll start kind of that last week in August. But that's the same dependent and fluid on everything going well in the next couple of weeks here. And I think depending on schools and the conference and the city, some schools still aren't they haven't done anything yet some schools started before us and so it's just kind of all over the place but uh i know some schools started even shut down i, I know I've, I've done more cleaning dennis and neil in the past four weeks spraying and wiping stuff down like i think i've done in 25 years i mean we're trying to get rid of these germs up in here are they are they making it mandatory for the athletes to wear masks and all that stuff during training yeah, I mean, I don't have mine on. It's, this is kind of a formal one, obviously, but we've got some fancy ones. I don't have any of them on me right now. It's got, got a nice Longhorn logo on them. And so, yeah, they have to have those on at all times. That's uh, protocol right now. Oh, oh wow. they can outdoors, okay. outdoors, they can put it down for a little bit, obviously, because, you know, if you can spread out more, it's a little safer outdoors. But indoors, it is mandatory to have those things up at all times. So. And then how often are the athletes getting tested? <laughs> Uh, you know, that's the medical side of what we're doing. I think what I heard recently, so they all got tested when they showed up. Every athlete, before they can even come in and do anything, they get tested for COVID. That's in addition to all their physical stuff. And so once the, once you do that and you get cleared, you can start training. So my understanding is this is all just coming out. Once they compete, if you're in season, I want to say they're going to minimally test once a week, possibly even twice a week. That's coming down from the NCAA. That's what I've heard, too. Right now, it's a ghost town. I'm up here in the weight room right now, but because volleyball finished this morning, there's nobody in here. But here at the end of the month, we're going to have, what, 50,000-plus students come back to campus? So you got to anticipate there's going to be some of those kids that just gonna, going to bring it with them, right? you got to you got to have protocols in place to manage those, you know, as, as things kind of pop up just to keep everybody safe and healthy, so... That's what Texas is trying to do, just put the best system in place to, to be able to manage and handle and take care of our athletes to the highest level. You say, I know here in California, they've pretty much canceled all fall sports for, for high schools. That's crazy to me. You know? I saw they did that for Division One or Division Two and Division Three today as well. Oh, really? In California? Oh, they did. No, nah, just cross country. Oh, really? Yeah, Division Two and Three are canceled for the fall. Or championships, at least, I think it is. If the students have to wear a mask inside when they're training, then then I would assume you're keeping an eye on their heart rate elevation then because, you know, you figure some people kind of maybe freak out because they can't breathe as well, so to speak, with the mask yeah, on. Then, huh? I know uh, volleyball is more of an anaerobic sport, so most of theirs is lifting. Their heart rates won't get really high. We did do some sand work with them that first week, and uh, we were having them put the mask on outdoors. But, man, you talk about when you need oxygen, I mean, yeah. I thought I saw somebody just did uh, like a long run with a mask on to prove you don't need, you know, it's not going to impact your oxygen. I'm like, I don't know about that, but I know them heart rates were higher. 
with that sure. mask on. And so you yeah. just, it's something that I think, again, it's very subjective and it's part of your onboarding process. You've got to educate your kids. Like if you're getting dizzy or lightheaded, then put the mask down, kind of create some space until you can get, you know, until you feel better. So I think it's subjective and you don't want to be foolish, you know, keeping a mask on and somebody's all dizzy. I, I haven't seen this with kids yet. I've seen some of some of our staff, but they have a little anxiety with that mask on. Just it so closes in. So you got to almost, you got to expect some of that with some people. And so you just got to be able to mitigate that and manage it as you go and be smart. Don't, don't let them get dizzy and fall trying to keep them from not breathing in something. So yeah, it's even just a different year in general, because think of your spring sport athletes that couldn't compete. They couldn't finish all their entire season. Um, even if they did every workout that you gave them the entire time during quarantine, like they're not going to come back to you how they came back to you last fall. Like it's just not going to happen because they didn't have the same demands. Um, so just knowing that, Hey, it's been a weird year. They're probably not going to come back to you like they usually do. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless if they had all the equipment or not, it's just different from competition to training to practice. Um, so just knowing everybody's going to come back in a different place. And that's where you definitely are going to have to individualize and make sure you're taking care of each individual athlete. Have you seen that, Donnie, with the kids that you've trained that have come back? Have they come back a little more deconditioned than normal? Yeah, I mean, 100%. We were pretty much out for like four plus months. And so, again, part of that, okay, they came in the first week, right, tested for COVID, ran through all the hoops with the medical team, got clearance. And then after that, they tested physically, force play testing, body comps, movement screens, things like that, just see kind of how we're moving. And so by and large, you definitely, everybody dropped off some. You know, some are larger percentages, like Clint said, that's where the individualization, to individualize each uh, program. The biggest thing we're seeing, the non-contact sport like volleyball, it's more jumping on a hard, like a court surface. It's soft tissue. I mean, you got to think for soft tissue, fascia, tendons, and ligaments to to get thick enough to withstand the volume of training. You're talking weeks or months. And so they haven't been in the gym. And so that's a big part of what we've been uh, trying to lay out here the last probably several weeks is just coming up with a plan that's almost, this goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier, kind of we've always done it that way, but just almost going to a one a day practice and more of a fluid periodization model where we're doing more athlete monitoring on their heart rate and recovery. And we're doing more force plate testing weekly to see where, how, what kind of force they're producing, how the fatigue is hitting their bodies and how they're landing. And so we're going to be adjusting things. Like there'll be some of our athletes that, they won't be able to handle the workload because they're just, they're more deconditioned than some of the some yeah. athletes have maybe access to more equipment. The way we kind of looked at it too is like, you'll have like kind of three separate mailboxes. Like here's somebody who's kind of in best shape, best case scenario, somebody who's kind of more of a, a yellow uh, kind of a flag. And then here's somebody who's in red that they can still work out, but you've really got to kind of count their jumps and limit their their volume on the core total time. Maybe they do 30% the first week, then 40, then you ramp them up each week on the court. But then if they're not on the court, then they're in here working with me, trying to get them back in shape. And then you slowly start to integrate them into more stuff. As the, as that needle moves, then you can start to move them back up to a full workload. But we're, not, we're in no hurry to get there. We want to take our time with it. So are you, are you measuring with heart rate variability, you said, or, or like a morning heart rate test? Yeah. So they, they come in every day and they'll do the, the, what's called a quick recovery test. So they all lay down for three minutes and get their resting heart rate and see where it's at compared to the every day before that to see from, from the 
baseline. And it'll give us a percentage on how well they recovered on their resting heart rate. And then that goes into, we got uh, Travis Volantes is our applied sports scientist. And so we send all our data to him and he'll put it in a matrix where we'll look at heart rate, wellness questionnaire, so subjective, force plates. And then uh, those are the big three that we look at every day. And, there, and again, the fourth one's time on the court. And he puts that into a, a nice formula that gives us kind of where they're at each day that we'll share with the coaches. And then we'll go up or down, gauge stuff based off that formula. The, the technology is incredible with all the things, especially in 25 years plus. What are some of the biggest things that you've seen that have, from the technology standpoint that's really benefited what you guys do and, and really has helped you guys make better athletes? I would say things that can give you objective data when it comes to force output. For side swimming, I mean, force is king. Um, and even in the pool, like you can argue force in different planes um, and different vectors is still obviously very important. But I'm talking like directionally force into the ground because um, everyone talks about how to make training transfer, right? The transfer of training from the weight room to the track or whatever it may be. And I'll just stick with track. So I can see how fast my kids are running. That's very, very objective. Right now I can see how fast they're pulling the bar. That is very, very objective. And I can also see, hey, when you pull the bar faster at this weight, based on your percentage, I see you getting faster outside. So I see a correlation of this makes sense. So we're always looking for trends. So for me, when I get in the championship season, like, I'm always trying to make sure we're producing the most force. It's not necessarily about lifting the most weight, always about like, hey, how much force can we produce? Because we want to be able to replicate that outside of the track. And then inversely, if I see us producing a ton of force inside and we're not getting faster, it lets us know that there's a hole and we're not just lifting weights to lift weights. So we can, we can, it lets us ask better questions, if that makes sense, um, to f try to figure out what the holes might be. Cause like I said, situationally, there's a lot of different constraints. It might just not be the weight room. It might not be the track. There might be something else, but if we're not getting that data, how do we know? So that helps us kind of figure out, Hey, this is what's working. This is what's not, or we don't know what's going on, but now we know something's off and we can look at it. Are you using that technology, the measurables also to see if maybe this person is overtraining? Does this person need more recovery work? Absolutely. I'm super fluid. Donnie will tell you guys, I'm really, really fluid with my, with my training. Um, and it's great. So I'll keep it with sprinting and track. Um, the days that we lift are also the days that we sprint outside. Um, so our coach uses that as a measure for what the kids will be able to do in the afternoon. So everything we're trying to do is going to be a quality session. So we make sure we have four to five hours of recovery between weight room session and outdoor session. That's when they're really high velocities outside, really high intensities in the weight room. So we want to make sure we get enough break in between to actually have a good quality session. Um, but then we're also saying, Hey, this athlete, their power wasn't great today, or, Hey, this athlete was having problems with stiffness in the, in the ankles today or whatever it may be. And they'll know, Hey, maybe we shouldn't do those extra plyos outside of the track later. So we'll use those things as objective measures to actually, we use the weight room to figure out what we can do outside, which I think a lot of people think of it the other way. Um, but I think both of them are very important to each other. If that makes sense. So we're looking at all those things. Now I know you guys both went through the stick course. Can you give an example, a couple examples of how you've incorporated the sticks in regards to, how you're training your athletes? We both use them a ton. I'll let Dottie go first, but we both use yeah. them a lot. First of all, those sticks are, that's a life changer right there. Yeah, so those are high level. I got my sticks here. I kind of I I snuck some home for the quarantine, though. I got some here right now. <laughs> right on. For me, Dennis, I think for volleyball, you get so many, you know, they hit the ball so many times. And so I think for, for volleyball, that front line you always talk about, 
has just cha- it's been a game changer. Open up that front line because they're hitting so much yeah. that I can get like just almost like not not weak, but get really short. I would say, but if I can open up that front line and engage that a little bit, that's that just saves their backs all day long. So I think that one, think like the, the shin box you do with it, the, the 90-90 with the sticks because they get so tight in their glutes. That one's been a game changer. And just some shoulder mobility stuff, you know. Because for me, like tennis and volleyball overhead sports, that's that that golden connection is the shoulder hip. Mm-hmm. And that those sticks allow us to not just stretch it, but to build some tension in there and get some ISOs to help them connect. Because I think it's one thing to be flexible, but it's another thing to build some some resiliency in there and robustness, which what we can do with those sticks really easy. So that's kind of how we've used them with those sports on, on my side. And it's uh, been a game changer. Yeah, I think very much a lot of the front line. Lateral line has been really big for me, especially like my golfers, um, my throwers. Um, it's been, like Donnie said, a game changer. Because, um, yes, you do want to get mobile, but you also want to get strong through range. So that's been it's been cool for us to be able to prep our athletes to get to those positions. And then now once we're able to get to those positions, hey, now let's get strong in these positions. So it's been a really been a really awesome thing for us to use. And I think we use them completely different, uh, which is really cool. That goes kind of back to the individualization. There's just so many things that you can do with the sticks. Um, my throwers will come in. My top thrower, NCAA champion, will come in. Hey, let me get those sticks. <laughs> so he'll he'll go in there and he'll he'll work them out and he'll use it as a warm up some days before he goes outside to throw bombs. Um, and my swimmers will come down and use them to open up. So I, there's just so many different applications that you can use them on, and we we definitely do as much as we can. Have you have you tested any of the you know the isometric priming uh, with some of the force plate analysis? I yeah, haven't yet. I haven't yet. Because our, our force plates too. The the that's a good question. Our force plates are a little bit farther from the weight room, so okay. it makes it a little bit of a challenge. We have. You know, this year until COVID hit, we requested to get some force plates in our weight room. So we we should get some in here at some point. And so it'll be a lot, lot more doable once we get them because they'll be right here uh, near where the sticks are at. So we'd be able to do some of that. It's a little bit of a process, a little bit of a hassle right now to get to our force plates. They're in a different part of the building. So haven't done a force plates. I can say I have done like the deadlift ISO um, to prep for cleans. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily know if the numbers went up, but I know the numbers were a lot higher sooner than they were before we were doing it. So it's, oh. it's definitely a good primer for that. That's awesome feedback. Love that. It's just because you just, you feel just more integrated in the movement. And that's such a big, that connection and that feedback is just, is phenomenal. Something it's, it's hard to explain that to people if they're not really in touch with it. Right. It's kind of, for sure. and that's the tough part. Uh, but once the athletes get the sticks and you guys put them in that position and give them the, the cues, then they're like, you get that facial expression where you just go, nah, you feel it. You're in, you're into it now. I think it's pretty cool too. Cause you think about ISOs and like, it is exactly what you say. Like you're isolating something, but a lot of the ISOs you can do with the sticks are global. Right. So that, that gives you a little bit different, different response than you might get with just a, a muscular ice. I told Neil, uh, Neil is uh, checking out the uh, website and the stuff. You guys have four weight rooms, right? Five four? now. Is that five now? Five. You That's got four. one, two, three. Yeah, it's four. Five. Yeah, we got five. It's five. Yeah, it's yeah. five. That's just crazy. We're spread out too. It's all over the place. It's spread out. Oh, I'll tell you, when I visited the campus, I was super impressed. I was like, damn. This is incredible. And the type of tools that you guys have, 
Uh, I thought it was phenomenal, uh, especially way in the squat racks where you guys can, you got the camera set up and you guys can actually videotape everything and see the whole movement from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really just do that assessment. I, I thought that was phenomenal. And, and that's the benefit of technology, you know, and it's great to see something as simple as sticks, bands, balls, but then see something as advanced techno- technology-wise and being able to see how both of those simple and advanced come together, working together to make better athletes. Yeah, sure. I, I think that speaks back to, like like we were talking earlier, just some kids, they, they can't tie their shoes when they come in, you know, <laughs> right? And then you got some, some, some kids that, you know, they can definitely train at a higher level. So you can, you can go regress all the way down to just – more of a fundamental kind of just teach them how to squat hinge and move and brace to where maybe you got like Clint, some of his track athletes, man, they need to move big weight fast. And so that's really advanced. You know, he may have them on a more of a fluid periodization model. So just different. Every, every athlete's different. You got the spectrum is really wide on, on what you need in the weight room today to train them. So, yeah, I remember so, when we were doing back squats in, in college, they were like, yeah, figured out <laughs> everyone had the barbell on there. And it's like, you just got to figure it out. There was no, uh, there was no regression for me or anyone. Uh, Clint, when you do your track athletes, are you looking not just from the strength and conditioning standpoint, but are you looking at adjusting running form or is that something that you would leave more to the coaches? Yeah, that's that's more something I'll leave to the coaches, um, but that's where also I can learn from coaches, right? So I've worked with a bunch of different track staff. I've learned a lot of things from a lot of different track coaches. The track coaches we have here are phenomenal right now, so I get to practice as much as possible. Um, so I remember when he first got here, like – I've seen coaches do the exact same drill differently. Like we'll just call it an A skip. Like you'll see coaches coach A skip completely different. So which is what is right. What's right is what's what the coach wants right now <laughs> in our mind. Right. So for us, I have to learn like, what are you looking for? What do you need? And then once I figure out how he wants something done or how they want it to look on the track, then I can bring that into the weight room because I know how this coach wants this and how they need the athletes to move. But it's, it's always working with trying to work with the coach and figure out, like, how can I help them get to where you want them on the track? And some of that's just going to be a reinforcement in the weight room from a movement standpoint. Very nice. Uh, so a uh, question we've been asking a lot of our guests lately is, what is one of the biggest things that you appreciate about what your job is? Uh, what, because we, a lot of people we know complain about their work most of the times, right? And there's people just sit around and bitch about it and think more about the negative things that they have to deal with in their job. But what's something that really you feel you love about what you do? You want me to go first, Coach? Yeah, go Clint. So we actually, Coach and I had this conversation three or four days ago, actually with the whole staff. This is something we're all very fortunate. We know we are. We're blessed to be here um, and do what we do. I've been in the field for eight or nine years now, and I was thinking back on it earlier this year. I've worked with over a 1,000 athletes in the collegiate setting. For me to be able to hopefully put some sort of positive impact on that many lives in that shorter period of time, like you can't touch that, right? How can I, how can I hopefully help these athletes in a very formative time in their life and be a positive influence or positive impact, even if it's something super small, if you can get some sort of positive impact from me or interaction with me in these four years, then that's, I don't know how I could ask for anything more. So I think just the opportunity to be able to like have a small 
peace and someone's growth is just, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think similar to Clint, definitely being in this COVID time we've been in and just reflecting, I kind of shared this with the staff, but I think for me, the thing that, that's really, uh, whatever, however you want to call it, it's been just life changing or transformational is just being in the community of sport. And I, I don't, I think it's something that I, I think I probably took for granted for sure. And you realize how, how important it is, especially when you get, in a time like this where you're more isolated. Again, I have a family that I'm around, but man, I, I know mentally speaking, uh, when we got to finally come back and be around the kids and coaches, the coaches weren't back, but just being around different staff, that was such just a breath of fresh air for me. It's like, there's just like it reinvigorated me. And something that I think, you know, that you do every day, again, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. You don't realize just how amazing, what an incredible profession it is until you can't do it. You know, sitting at home, working virtually, I mean, it, it, it definitely works. But for me, it was it's, it's like torture. And so I like to move around and be active and have like a different day. You know, it was like Groundhog Day, I'm sure like for you guys too, uh, being when we were first locked down. Uh, so I think this, the, the community of sport, and I think this is just me, like, you know, me being a dad too, but watching some of these younger athletes, like some of our freshmen come in and just like lost, you know, like how to do things and they, they can't, they can't figure things out. And like a deer in the headlights, like that stuff cracks me up still, you know, and you're just, you're just dealing with like young children still. And you're like Clint said, I think that four year, four and a half, five year period, they are so impressionable and you have such a stamp that you can put on their life and their character and their life skills and just their thought processes and what kind of, you know, what kind of a leader they'll be one day, what kind of worker, what kind of mom or dad or community uh, leader they're going to be. You have such a chance to, to influence them for generations and, and they learn some really valid lessons, you know, and you get to help teach them some of that. And so I think, I forget the quote, what is it? Uh, a coach that I think impacts uh, over 10,000 lives in, the, in a lifetime. I think that I think there's a lot of truth in that, you know? And so I've always, I think, and Clint's heard me talk about this. I've always viewed coaching as a calling, not a career. And I think there's a little, there's a little slight difference there. I think a career is more, you know, maybe you're trying to climb up the ladder and all that. Uh, and whereas I think a calling is more, it has a little bit more of a purpose and destiny, so to speak to it. Uh, so I think it has a little bit more intrinsic motivation uh, when you have a when you have a calling on something. You really feel like, man, this is something like I want to I want to devote my life to influence and impacting young kids for as long as I can. So and it brings a lot of joy and significance in it. So if you had two books only that you could recommend that every trainer or coach should have in their library, what two books would those be? Dale, I'll let you go first because I see you looking at your bookshelf. No, I was actually reflecting. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I, I, I read so many books. I was still trying to think of which ones I would say. You got any comes to mind right off the bat? I think Dan John, Easy Strength comes yeah. to mind pretty quick. That's a good one. That's, that's, that's a, good one, yeah. a great, great book. Doesn't really matter who you're coaching. You can get a lot of really good fundamentals out of there. Yeah, I think probably the, you know, on a leadership, I'm a, I love leadership. And I think anything probably if, if somebody's never read the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership by John C. Maxwell, I mean, that's like fundamental, whether you're a coach, you're in corporate America, nonprofit, whatever, if you're an athlete, 
young coach, older coach. I mean, that book is like timeless to me. So I think that's that's one that comes to mind for sure. And I uh, definitely love easy strength for sure. Because I think what's interesting is with your guys' coaching styles, and I and I see this in a lot of top coaches, it's very easy going. It's it's not like I think we have this idea or concept of coaches just being ah in your face and yelling and screaming all the time, whether that's an old profile or stereotype. But the top level coaches that we encounter and get to talk to are just very easy going. Uh, and, and just more connection based with the athletes. For sure. I think you have to be. One of the first quotes I heard, it was my first week coaching in the collegiate setting. Uh, coach told me, nobody cares about how much you know until they know how much you care. And that, I mean, I carry that to this day. Um, if you can build a relationship with an athlete, it doesn't matter if you're the worst coach in the world, they'll run through a brick wall for you. Whereas if you're, if you can't build a relationship and you have the best program in the world and they don't want to do it, like what are you getting done? So I think building that relationships and, that just that's that's what it's really about at the end of the day. You know, to add to that, I think, um, like I said, I played football and I worked in football for 17 years. And I think a lot of that, whether it's just military or, you know, I think there's a there's a perception there of being hard on athletes that, you know, I, I think there's a time and a place for some of that. But I think first and foremost, I think we're all we're teachers, right? I'm a teacher at heart. Uh, not just a teacher in the weight room, but like you just like I just mentioned, you want to teach them life lessons and how to be better young ladies and, and, and better young men. I think if you're going to do that, you've got to figure out how do you earn athletes' trust and how do you connect with them. And again, you know, as a young coach, I try to I try to be like Tommy Tough guy with with some of those guys, and just it wouldn't go over well for me, you know. So I think you know, motive. I always say everybody has a different type of motivational DNA, right? Everybody has a different drive. We have different needs in wars, DNA. And I think what may motivate one kid may really demotivate and turn off another kid. Mm-hmm. But I think just like in training, you've got, you've got to have this, like, I think a, a wide array of palette. Of, you got your core principles and, 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 and core values of who you are as a person and what you stand for, your core conviction, right? But then I think how you apply those to different athletes, how you communicate, how you interact and motivate and instruct athletes is the art of coaching. And I think that's the big piece that sets coaches apart. There may be an athlete you get, they need a size 14 up in their rear end. They may need that. <laughs> and, that and they don't, they respond to that well, but you know, there may be a, most athletes don't like that. You know, so I was an athlete. I didn't respond well to, so, you know, when I was in college, I didn't respond well if somebody just would rip me a new one. I mean, not not that I couldn't get it done occasionally. My coach definitely did that. But I, re- I would respond a lot better to if, if you would come up alongside me and, and say something encouraging me. For me, I'd run through the wall for you. I was very loyal. And so I think, you know, the, the golden rule is treat others how they want how you would like to be treated. But I think the platinum rule always applies better. Treat others how they would like to be treated. You know, and I think coaching is like eat steaks. If you like, all y'all like steaks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would imagine uh, we probably don't all like our steaks cooked the same, you know? And, but imagine if I try to cook the way I like steak the same for all of us, some of y'all wouldn't even eat the steak. And so I think coaching is like that. You got to, figure out, get to know that kid, how they were raised, how they were coached, what they like, take your tools and your principles and your, and your system 
And how do you get them to buy into that system, kind of cook their steak, right, the way they like it, and then get them to eat that? And I think that's the, the key difference that sets coaches apart. So I think you hit it right on the head. And everything you said, I think the key principle to that is that it takes time. It's yeah. not going to happen day one. So do you have a lot of athletes come back, um, you know, if, it, if they've moved on to higher levels and, and they're wanting to work with you, keep working with you? Yeah, I actually work with a pretty big stable of post-collegiate professional athletes. And I'd say just obviously they like whatever is going on in the training. So that's good. But also I think just we've been able to build a big enough rapport and build a relationship where, hey, they think they can continue getting better whether it's with me or in the facility, whatever it might be. Um, but they can go anywhere in the world and they decide to keep working with you. That's, that's a pretty cool thing, but they could, they don't have to. Right. So I think that that just goes back to communication and building relationships and fostering. Them. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was with football, I'd have more come back and work with me in the off season, but, um, the core sports I have now, they're definitely occasionally I have some of them, but, but the, the, the number, the percentage of professional athletes on like tennis teams and volleyball is not as high as you would have with like a football or something. So but definitely occasionally I have somebody come back and work with me for sure, which is always fun. Uh, any last questions, Neil? Oh man, you guys are, you guys are awesome. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. We Thanks appreciate you guys coming on. We, we uh, love your input. Thanks for the information. I think we have to keep our fingers crossed and hope everything stays on the path that is on right now, as far as uh, dealing with the current COVID situation and, making sure everybody stays healthy first and foremost. Hopefully there's a season uh, we can give sports. Because everybody we know, you know, sports is our get away from reality for a little bit, man. Our, our break from everyday life. And it's the one time we can all get together and just enjoy the moment of, of uh, human human feats. So that's something that we're yeah. hoping we can do. So uh, thanks again for joining us, guys. Uh, appreciate you guys. And uh, we look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Thank you, David. Appreciate, Appreciate it. So thanks again, everybody, for joining our podcast. And uh, until the next podcast, till we meet again, everybody out there, be good to each other. That's right. <laughs>